Hello everyone and welcome back to For What It's Earth podcast, your bi-weekly, fortnightly, fortnightly environment, sustainability, nature podcast where we try to make big issues a little bit smaller and try to package them up and give some solutions for what we can do in our day-to-day lives as well. My name is Lloyd. I'm Emma and very excitingly this week we are joined by self-confessed nature nerd, Lucy Hodson, or Lucy Lapwing, perhaps you might know her as if you've been on the internet at all this year. Lucy, hello, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi both, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So Lucy, you're a conservationist, science communicator, ambassador for various trusts. Talk me through what that actually looks like for you. What what do you do? Oh, it's quite a lot really, Um, quite a broad area. So um, in my full-time job, I work as a communications officer for a large wildlife charity and uh, in my spare time I just spend all of it running around poking around in nature trying to observe wildlife all British wildlife um, learn about it um, photograph it very badly I'm no, by no means a professional photographer <laughs> um, and then just write about it and communicate about it so um, I can see amongst my peers and amongst um, you know people of most age groups that there's this really big kind of lack of connection with nature people don't really know what it is what it's about and mm. um, so my passion is to just try and communicate that to people and show people that it's actually like the best thing in the world and it's really good for you and it is in trouble unfortunately and we need to do a lot to save it so um yeah my my entire thing is just kind of communicating through different mediums online mostly instagram and um, but just whatever i can do really um, and to just I don't know, try and big up nature and get people enthused about it. Well, it sounds like you We're made your way it. onto the correct podcast then in that yes. case. <laughs> <laughs> Where did your like, love of nature begin? Is this a lifetime love or is this unfurled? It's definitely a lifetime love. Um, so I, I tend to call it the nature thing because there's not really a, a specific name for it. Is people There's a certain type of person that for some reason has this deep connection with nature and you don't know why, you don't know what started it, but they just kind of get this thing and it's like an obsession. Now, I deeply in my heart believe that every single kid has that. Every, you know, show any toddler that's not been tainted. <laughs> tainting is a big thing. Tainted, Worms wow. Or, yeah, it's a strong word, but it is true. Like if, if they're not tainted by reading body language, by control of their actions, control of their surroundings, if you get any toddler in a natural environment and show them things like worms or beetles or frogs or any of those bread and butter kid nature activities the kid will love it because we just naturally have this wonder and you know a lot of people say i'm not into nature but if you show them attenborough talking about like sexy dolphins they're gonna love it everybody's got some kind of animal they can have an affiliation with and unfortunately most kids lose that along the way um so i I think every young child has the nature thing i definitely did for me it was just a fixation I, i didn't really see the point of other interests when there's so many living things in the world like Mm. why would you need anything else um so I loved it from being a really young kid it was just everything I wanted to do was to work with animals I didn't really have an influence in my life that was a particularly nature-y person um you know a lot of people who get into conservation had like granddad or grandma who was into bird watching or an aunt or uncle or even one more dad or anyone would kind of coach them in it I didn't really have anyone like that I had very amazing parents who let me free roam so I was was one of the last kids like of the 90s 
to, to be allowed to run wherever I wanted. Um, oh, reason. wow. Lucky. Um, so, yeah, it was often me, kind of, and my brother and my sister and a couple of other kids that were allowed to do it on our own. There wasn't a lot of kids that were, you know, allowed to, to wander away from the garden. Mm. Um, so I just spent all my childhood, all my weekends, all my summer evenings outside, watching nature, seeing it, just getting really excited over things like newts and birds. And um, So I didn't particularly have a lot of knowledge. Um, I just knew that it was just the best thing. And obviously all of the communications around that. I remember watching Attenborough documentaries when I was like eight, crying my eyes out about like the future fate of cheetahs. Um, and I only discovered that conservation was a thing when I was like 10. So I started looking into it as like a career. Careers advice was the worst thing. Yeah. <laughs> An absolute joke in school. So my careers advisor said that I'd be best working in a zoo, which I mean, at least it's slightly close, but it's not conservation in the true sense. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, one of the quizzes that I did told me that I should be either a botanist or a dog groomer <laughs> because oh, you're okay. both working with animals <laughs> or plants. Anyway, long story short, I went to uni, studied wildlife conservation, um, and that's after then when I got my first job in conservation that I started really learning about British natural history and identifying stuff. So I'd say, even though I had the nature thing, my proper obsession with it only started post-uni. Um, so, yeah, that answers your question. <laughs> it does, it does. Um, but before we get too far into it, we need to ask you one question. Lucy, what one good thing have you done for the planet this week? Well, this is not necessarily a good thing for the planet, but I feel like this is a good thing that you can do with a, for a person. And making a change on an individual level um, to another person is, I think, one of the kind of the strongest parts of like social change, like power, just inspiring another person or switching that little light on. I was on a, an early morning walk in the morning because it was a really nice morning. Um, I had to go and record a video stood in a river for the Beaver Trust and there's a river at the end of my road. So I got my wellies on and got out the door. And um, I was kind of just skulking next to the river because I didn't want to be seen to be like weird and climbing in rivers. So I was just waiting for like the people around me to kind of amble on. And I started watching some red wings in a bush through my binoculars and I was like just lost in them, guzzling berries. And I just heard this bloke behind me, like, come up to me. And he just went, oh, um, good morning. And I was like, oh, hi, all right. Um, morning, are you okay? And he was like, oh, uh, you're not skulking, are you? And he thought I was, like, um, peering in through people's windows. Skulking. <laughs> skulking. Excellent word. Anyway, I explained what I was doing. And this man just opened up to me about him never having noticed nature before. And um started telling me about all the birdies since lockdown and all the footpaths walked since lockdown. Oh, um, wow. But I just told him about all different places locally to go and see some birds. You know, you can see kingfisher really well here. You can see this here, this, that. And he was like, oh, this has changed like my roots. I'm going to walk all these places every day. And so just having that human connection, I think when you're outside nature watching, if you take the time to explain to someone, you know, if you find a really good fly, a garret mushroom, get some kids over and show it to them or... If you're out watching adders, that's always a really great one to engage like families with because they're never going to get a chance to see that if they've not done it before. But you could make like, if somebody, when I was five, showed me an adder, I would have lost my little mind. Like, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have been able to cope. And just that person taking the time out of the day to try and connect somebody with the natural world, I think, is a little action you can do that just makes either their day or, or year. Yeah, I, I suppose if, if you don't know where to start for this sort of thing, it's quite hard to to get started isn't it to, to be able to know where to go for in your case birds etc uh I, I, exactly. quite recently i was because i live in in swansea we're, we're blessed with lots of coastline and you get seals quite often uh knocking around and uh, we we're on a walk recently and we stopped to watch them and it didn't occur to me that 
for a while that so many people didn't, re- didn't look out to see and realize they were there. They were just walking past until we just sort of made a show of pointing at them. And then all of a sudden you get a little, little crowd watching. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really I'm nice to that. engage with other people and nature at the same time. Yeah. I think that's People. brilliant. Yeah, really good. Oh no, I was just I was just going to say I think that's really wonderful because you've you might well have started a lifelong fascination with not just nature but the environment in general and the state of the world. Oh, I think that's really good. You've you've smashed it out of the park there. To be honest, how oh, good? <laughs> that's a superb answer, Lloyd. What about you? Sorry to make you follow that one. <laughs> I know I can't really do anything to match that, but um, I downloaded an app the other day called let me double check what it's called it's called the great egg case hunt it's looking for for shark uh, egg cases on the coast because uh, as i said i'm in swansea we've got a lot of coastline and i, I see shark uh, egg cases uh, all the time and i downloaded it about a week ago and since then i haven't seen any <laughs> on, on the beach so i'm just waiting because it, it's a bit of a we've talked about citizen science projects on the podcast mm. in the past it's uh, a way of logging your finds. You can look up what species it is, etc., and then you can send it to the Shark Trust for, for logging and then keep a, a nice record of everything that washes up. Uh, so I'll, I'll let everyone know when I actually get to use it. <laughs> oh, that's, that, nice that's as far as I've gotten so far. Well, you're I just going to have app. to be out on the coast every day, desperately looking for things that you can add to their data set. Yes, yeah, absolutely. What about yourself, Emma? Um, mine is less impressive, I feel. So one of my friends has just bought a house and I've given her a referral code to the green energy provider that I use so that she can start her new home on renewable energy. Ah, there we go. Tick. Keeping the theme of, of, of spreading, <laughs> spreading the love. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an easy switch once you've made the switch to then know that your home is powered renewably. Um, it, you don't mm. have to think about it again. And it's just like a really good thing to have running away in the background, I think so. Hopefully that will set her up nicely in her in her new place. All right. Okay. Well, let, let's get back to it then. Um, right. I'm going to call you an expert in British wildlife, but the one thing that's kind of around this time is fungi. And can I also just thank you for putting a crazy amount of like rude fungi pictures online <laughs> because I never realised how many of them look very phallic or indeed make a tree look like it's got testicles and you have brought that to my attention this year <laughs> so for that I thank you <laughs> so I was going to ask you know are you a super fungi fan or is it more just that at this time of year they're out and about and you know why are they cool apart from looking like genitalia <laughs> I mean that's the main reason what other reason do you need uh, all right yeah you're it. done next question <laughs> Um, fungi is a weird one. So first of all, I would I would question, not in a bad way, but you call me an expert because I think one of the best things about nature in all of its forms is that you can never know everything, ever. And there's still so, so, the deeper you get into it, the more you realise you don't know. Mm. Um, there's so, so, so much that I don't know. I'm very much a, uh, what's it called? What's it called? A thingy of all trades, master of none. Is it jack of jack all of trades? trades? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, there's nothing I particularly have a speciality in. Fungi is just, um, it's just such a world that pops up just at this time of year. And it's kind of when you've got your finger on that pulse of the year and how the natural world changes throughout of it, you can kind of expect it coming. You can, towards the end of August, you can start smelling it in the air. You can start smelling the rot starting to come in as the grass starts to go over and you start just getting those little whiffs of autumn. And all of that is wrapped up with just the changes 
on the microscopic level in nature. And that's fungi just starting to get its little tendrils in and start breaking down in all of its little niches. Um, now, fungi, I reckon I could name a hundred species, maybe. A hundred? Okay. So well, not many go, then. Go. And there's... <laughs> one, yeah. two, three. And there's 15,000 species in the UK. So... Wow. That's okay. where I'm at. <laughs> All right. Well, so beginning, we'll beginning, 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 beginning. A fungi fan then, not an expert. That makes yeah, you feel more I think, comfortable. <laughs> I think that's it. It's, it's just, you know, you could choose to go down that road and, you know, start dissecting the gills and getting the spores under the microscope and all of that stuff. But it's just so much fun. My my strategy with all nature watching is to take myself to as natural an area as possible and just see what I can find and then identify and learn about it of any type of life. So whether it's flowers or fungi or insects or birds or whatever. Um, and fungi is just this brilliant thing to see at this time of year because all of that plant material, if you think if you think of a footpath that you're familiar with and think about it in January compared to June and just how much smaller that space feels in June because so much vegetation has taken up that space. It's all grown in and it, it surrounds you and wraps you up. And then all of that has got to disappear again. And all of, a, a large proportion of that breaking down is, is the mycological world. It's fungi that helps break things down. It's, they're the rotters. So there's just so many different forms of it to see in like, you know, colours and smells and wonderful shapes. Um, <laughs> so I think it's just a great thing to do at this time of year because it can often seem really dreary and dark and miserable. But you can find some really cool mushrooms, you know, from now or from like September all the way through to... February, March. So, so go on, the, the natural question then is, what is your favourite fungi? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, I've got I've got ones on my wish list that um, I dream about seeing that I've not yet. But I love stink horns. I mean, that's the phallic one, Phallus impudicus. They're just so hideously weird that it's like, how do these things exist? How does something hatch out of an egg that's covered in slime and it grows up and it looks like the most phallic thing you've ever seen and the top of it's covered in a black slime that attracts flies that think it's rotting meat and then the slime sticks to the foot and then they fly around the forest and spread its spores and it reproduces it's like how has something evolved like that nature's weird <laughs> isn't neat. it very neat yeah <laughs> it's just yeah it's just and, and that shows that tiny tiny balance between all the different elements of an ecosystem like how delicate that relationship is it's brilliant and so many things like that the, the more you get into fungi there's a great guy on instagram if you're on instagram um, called the fungi guy who just does the best fungal stuff in the world like it I makes me laugh so much so funny and he just translates that world that can often be really scientific and geeky he just translates it in the most human way and i think i think once you start looking at it through those glasses of not feeling the pressure to know what it is to just enjoy the colors and smells and forms then it's yeah it's a great world to look at I think it's definitely the unsung hero, isn't it, of nature? Because as you said, like it grows on or creates rotting matter. Um, mm. It's got such an important job, but a lot of people don't give it the credit that it's due. But you're right. It's amazing. The, the, the amount of different, incredibly diverse things that you can go and find, it just blows my mind. It's something that I've decided that I would like to start learning about more this year. Definitely. Yes. Are there any good places to start for learning? Yes. Um, so I I have a, a geeky book. I use the Collins Guide for Fungi Identification. It's all illustrations in there. Um, the thing about fungi, as I said, is it's such a big group that you, you kind of better just get in a vibe of like the family that you're looking at. Like, you know, you're looking at a wax cap, you know, that you're looking at a bracket fungus or whatever, rather than trying to get right down to the species because it's really hard. Um, there's amazing resources online. There is an app that I've not tried yet called Trumify that's supposed to be 
like you zap it and it tells you, but I don't see how that could work when you've got to look at spores. Um, yeah, I think just taking your time, Google's your best friend. Some great websites like Nature Spot and things like that that help in some really good places. But yeah, just go out anywhere. Go to like, well, not anywhere because fungi's in trouble in a lot of places, but like woods. and. Why is fungi in trouble in places? What threats does fungi face? Other than, I guess, if you're removing all of the deadwood and stuff from somewhere. Yeah, so that's an obvious one. Is um, So fungi, we most often think of associated with rotting wood and a lot of the most kind of visible species are. But fungi lives in everything. Like it's it's in the air, it's in water, it's in plant matter, it's in soil, it's in wood. It's in living organisms like the, the brain controlling fungus group, the cordyceps that like make ants into zombies and all sorts of things. They're everywhere. And if you think of how much land's in the UK, if you go into your average really kind of intensively farmed field, you won't see any mushrooms. And that's because fungi spends most of its time under this under the surface of whatever substrate lives in. It's only the mushrooms that we see that protrude, as we call them mushrooms, whatever form they are, that as they protrude and grow out there. So the most of the time from the phalluses, the boobs, everything else. Um, <laughs> most of the time it's tendrils um, known as mycorrhizae that live under the the surface of things and if you think of your average intensive field that's plowed every year so those delicate lacy web structures of the soil have smashed up and broken up you know and they take hundreds of years to develop these networks where trees can communicate between them because trees have relationships with fungi in the roots um, and then people um, when they're managing the land will use fungicides so things actively designed to kill fungi because it will help prevent pest species of fungi that might grow in a crop that gets into the soil kills the soil it's uh, the fungi bits in the soil as well. So most areas now are devoid of, well, all types of life, but fungi being one of them is quite scary. <laughs> Sorry to be depressing. No, I mean, this year has been a year of two halves, hasn't it? Depressing news, but also people finding joy in nature. I mean, has your relationship with nature changed at all this year, do you think? I know a lot of people has, but if you were already very invested in nature, how has this kind of weird weird ride that 2020 has been played a role in that for you. <laughs> that's a good question and um, every year i think i can't be more obsessed with nature and then every year i become more obsessed but that's just an ongoing trend um i'd say this year i've gained a bigger respect for the nature on my doorstep um off of off of lockdown one um obviously i didn't start my car i didn't start the engine in my car for like nearly eight weeks <laughs> um so everything was on foot Every day I went, went on my daily exercise walk, it was on foot from the front door. So I was really restricted in the places I could go. So I was beating the paths again and again and watching the seasons kind of, or the, the spring come in on the same places. So I found so much nature in places that I would have previously dismissed as being crap for nature. I was just like, well, I'm not going to go down there because it's intensively farmed and it's because the old river. And then next thing you know, I found, I found like a San Martin bank with loads of San Martins in and a kingfisher nest and... That I never, like, if you'd have asked me, I'd have been like, yeah, right. And now it's like, oh, my God, there's nature really close. But I know, you know, I would have driven to a nature reserve previously or walked to a nature reserve. And whereas, you know, the end of the road is, is yielding all of these treasures. So I'd say, yeah, nature on the doorsteps, the thing that's changed. Well, I mean, talking of spring there as well, um, you worked behind the scenes on Spring Watch this year, didn't you? I mean, how was that? But also in terms of it being like this year, it was a completely alien year for live TV and Springwatch was scheduled right at the beginning of when everything locked down. What was that like? What was that experience for you? Yeah, it was, it was brilliant. It was really, really good. Obviously really intense because um, it was a really unusual year. So 
Springwatch is like the ultimate goal for like any nature nerd in Britain. It's just such a brilliant show. Um, it's full of just amazing natural history knowledge, like a really wonderful team. Um, so I was um, absolutely chuffed to be asked to be a, a digital tech assistant behind the scenes. So kind of running the live streams on the website. They've got all these amazing nest finders that find bird nests and place really delicate little wildlife cameras around them. So it was helping stream that live and just getting an insight into those behind the scenes things on the nest, you know, the crazy drama going on. Um, but having to do that all from home. So massive desk set up where I'm sat now, like all these screens, um, kind of working from 4am till 4pm every day. <laughs> wow. Um, well, every day for two days, like on and off. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was just brilliant. It was kind of like, it felt like it was just more important. Like there's been a lot of, recognition as you said of people saying nature in lockdown their relationships with it has changed and i think it played a really good service to people during that time so yeah it was really 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 good really good that's amazing it looked, it looked amazing fun and like you said the team just are wonderful what an amazing opportunity to be part of that pressing those buttons and watching those birds because i imagine if you were just surrounded by loads of live streams there must have been loads that you saw that other people didn't see yeah, yeah. So um, it was just really good, like watching live fledging and like cheering them Aww. on. And um, there was a really big drama when there was a pair of black caps and the female black cap just something just dropped dead, really, really dramatically. Like Shakespearean on the side of the nest, she just went, oh. And then <laughs> oh, like all the kids just like hopped over a body. <laughs> it was just like, oh, okay. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, so just real wildlife drama that, you know, you don't normally get to see on telly. It was like, oh, this is mint. It was great. Yeah, I think I like, I mean, the lockdown gave quite a useful time in terms of it was spring so there was loads happening and suddenly everybody got into not just nature on the doorstep but in particular birding and watching birds from their windows or from their walks like I became obsessed with the pair of great tits that nested in my nest box and was watching them all the time instead of working from home like I was supposed to be doing and like I just think I I suppose actually my question is more for those people or people that are into birds what can we expect through the winter months? Because we're, we're in another lockdown situation now. It doesn't feel quite so optimistic in terms of the seasons changing. Most people find spring the more optimistic and happy month. We're going into the darker months. Nature, as you said, is kind of recoiling, getting ready for the winter. What birds are still around? How can we still birdwatch? And yeah. That's a really good question. Um, and I used to... So winter's my least favourite month. I'm just going to put it out there. Months. Um, just the one uh, month <laughs> season <laughs> I no, it's like eight months it's like eight months long isn't it season it's so long um, it's so long. <laughs> um before i was proper british nature geek i thought winter was the worst thing in the world and being able to increase my nature knowledge um has massively kind of changed my relationship with it i still dislike it but it's a lot more handleable because you know that there's things to look forward to in a natural way and one big part of that is birds so um Obviously, in spring, we get this influx of, of birds that return to Britain from warmer climes to, to breed here. Um, all of these iconic birds, things like swifts and swallows and cuckoos and turtle doves and chiffchaffs and willow warblers and all of these things that come back. You know, we, we learn to kind of predict when they're going to come back. We know almost to the day when they're going to come back. And we watch them all throughout spring and then they leave and you think, oh, God, now what? But there is in reverse, you know, we are the... How do I word this because this is complicated? We are to Scandinavia and Northern Europe what Africa is to us, if that makes sense. So we are a warmer place that the birds of Northern Europe will come to escape 
a real winter because we get a very mild winter. It might not feel like it, but compared to, you know, really, really intense, icy, cold winters, Britain's actually quite a nice little holiday for a lot of birds. So we do get this influx of, of birds that come down here and spend um, a milder winter in the UK. So at the moment, there's a um, brilliant little bird to listen out for and look out for is the red wing. And that's a type of thrush. Um, it's smaller than a blackbird that you get in your garden. And it's got this um, like creamy white eyeliner stripe. And the red, it's called red wing because it's got like red armpits, ready orange armpits. When it lifts its wing up, it's all like ginger. Um, and they, along with a, not, a lot of other birds, are things like the field fair, which is another large thrush, and the really punky, dramatic, sexy wax wings that we occasionally get. Um, they all come over here for the glut of kind of autumn and winter food in the form of berries and fruit. Um, so you'll see them on things like hawthorn and on quite a few like ornamental trees in car parks of supermarkets. Quite often you get wax wings in supermarket car parks. Um, so they come here because the berries aren't all like frozen as they are up in, in Scandinavia, so they can just come and, and feed all winter long. So um, if you go outside at night in the dark, so obviously it gets dark at like what? Like lunchtime, doesn't it? It gets dark at like, <laughs> at like four o'clock. Um, if you go and stand outside, just outside your front door and just cup your ears and put, put your head to the skies, you can hear red wings flying over and you'll be able to hear that in towns and cities in the countryside. And you make this really, really high pitch like noise. It's almost too high to hear, but you can catch it. And that's just amazing, knowing that there's these flocks of birds flying over that you can't see, and you can just listen to with your own ears. You don't need any special equipment. They migrate by night to avoid predators. Um, so that's a really nice thing to do in winter. That's a lot of people obviously do realise birds will migrate and fly around, but I think it's people forget while well, we sort of describe British wildlife as almost quite boring. A lot of people quite often, mm. uh, but you, mm. you don't appreciate the the incredible stories behind. The, the, the bird you happen to see in the tree just dismiss it as another bird but that bird as you say has, has come hundreds and hundreds of miles it's it's yeah it's, it's different from the next bird from the next bird from the next bird and and it ties back into what you were saying earlier about getting other people involved like, until other people realize these stories behind these animals they will just continue to dismiss it as a, a bird a moth a butterfly etc so it's a case of, exactly. as you're saying, like educating people and just reaching out and sharing what you know. Mm. Sorry, that was my inner monologue. And you can start. <laughs> no, you're exactly. That's what I think all the time. You can start. I used to think it. I went to uni, you know, to do wildlife conservation. And in my head, it was like, I'm going to go and save elephants. And I'm going to go and, you know, <laughs> run around with lions. And it's all going to be amazing in Africa. And it's like... There's such problems with wildlife here. Like the natural environment in the UK is in such a dire state and in a lot of like really developed areas. That's where the, the, the biodiversity crisis is also happening. Um, and yeah, if you don't know what's there, if you don't, if you don't know the wildlife, you can't see it for its value. All birds look brown. They're all really boring. Why would you care? But if you can start really basic, telling the difference between a blue tit and a great tit and then just watching them, the drama that unfolds in all wildlife is the same everywhere. So you can get the same level of like suspense and drama watching a sparrowhawk hunting a pigeon as you can watching on a documentary a lion hunting a zebra. It's if anything, it's slightly better because it's there in front of you. Um you can witness amazing, amazing things that just completely captivate you. And the more you learn, the more it means to you, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Oh, I always used to remember as a kid, like my granny would 
she would be just talking to herself in the kitchen but she'd be like telling me things like oh you know the blue tits have moved in they're a bit late this year or oh that one's really cheeky it's been hanging out on the bird table and it said you know it shouted at a squirrel the other day and stuff and she's just nattering away (laughs) and I don't think I really appreciated at the time but she has such amazing knowledge of exactly what wildlife happens in the sphere that she sees every single year because she's seen it through the seasons and Mm. um, I mean I don't know when my mid to late 20s I've constantly moved around in the last 10 years of my life I've never sat somewhere and watched the same thing happen over and over again and I think that if you are able to do that that can be an amazing way of really connecting with the personalities in nature as well as watching how they all work together yes. and because it's not just okay this bird is a bit bluer than the other one as well is it it's oh they've all got such characters both differences between the species but in yeah. individuals as well and I think that for me is where I start to get a bit obsessed with I mean, it's for this. For, to be honest, it's the same for plants as well. I got really into vegetable gardening this year, and I started giving them more personalities in my head. And maybe that was just because lockdown really affected me badly. Mm-hmm. But it was as soon as you spend enough time with something that's alive, you realise that it's alive. Does that make sense? I think you just you don't always connect Absolutely. with something being alive and on its own little journey and in its own little world and going about its own life until you can take yourself out yeah. of your own and look at it. It's brilliant. Yeah. And that'll carry on no matter, you know, no matter what problems you've got in your life, no matter what's going on, how busy you are, how stressed you are. Nature's just over there, just still nature in the way and it doesn't care. <laughs> like you don't matter at all to it. And I find that really weirdly comforting. I'm like, oh, OK, cool. It is comforting, Absolutely. but I also kind of don't like that in a way because I kind of we we do matter to it because we can cause such problems to it. Oh, so yeah. I, I yeah, yeah. struggle with the like. Like, yes, it will continue in some form somewhere, but that isn't a get out of jail free card, really, is it at all? Like, we still need to be putting oh, so much not. effort into it. So, I mean, are you, are you optimistic at all about the future of British nature? Because it is bleak at the moment. It's bleak, the biodiversity <laughs> crisis. Do you want me to be completely Absolutely, honest? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> I'm not optimistic. As long as you don't start crying. No, oh no, I've, I've cried in job interviews before about it. I am not... <laughs> Sorry, did it. you get the job or? Yes, I did actually. Uh, because <laughs> of the crying? <laughs> hey, your passion shone <laughs> through the tears. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm not optimistic about it because it's so complicated. It's so ingrained. It's so far gone. I'm optimistic in some very, very small circumstances. So at the moment we're seeing this very specific example we've seen a groundswell around public pressure and pressure of influential people to reintroduce the beaver um to england and scotland it's having issues in scotland as well uh, across the whole of the uk really and it's an iconic species that should be here that was made extinct hundreds of years ago um and it's as Derek gow says in his in his book bringing back the beaver that they are just givers of life they're bringers of life they're the species that can help regenerate so many of our broken landscapes but the disconnect between people and nature is so far gone, I don't know how it can change. Without us, without us being literally forced and some massive drama happening, we can try, we can try. Like, I'll keep fighting till the day I die, but when you spend all of your time doing it and then you turn around and you, you, know, you see your average person on the street, um, one thing that really cemented it in me recently was, was it Oxfam did that second-hand September mm-hmm. campaign. And they were like, can you commit to not buying a new item of clothing for a month? I was like, people buy so many clothes that not buying an item of clothing for a month is a problem. Like, 
not that I'm blaming like consumers because the entire system's horrendous, but at the same time, I was like, we're, we're so far gone. <laughs> we're so far gone that we're just consume, consume, consume. Like the entire society and all of this, all the corporations and everything are all set up with this model that is just destroying biodiversity. And biodiversity crisis is getting more airtime, people talking about it more. But if you look at like some of the government um, announcements this week to do with the budget, everything's focused on technological um, solutions to climate change. So, you know, we're talking about carbon capturing, which is like millions and billions of pounds. It's all technologically focused. And yes, there is a place for that. We need renewable energy. We need these solutions. But nobody's talking about natural-based climate solutions. Like, nobody's talking about the biodiversity crisis with the same amount of urgency. It's just not on people's radar because they don't see it. They don't understand it. Um. So no, in a, that was a very long way of saying no. I'm very um, I'm going to email about it. That's okay. <laughs> I think it's it's really yeah. hard to be optimistic sometimes. And I get I oscillate between speaking to really amazing people or finding out about projects and watching the passion sometimes erupt into some amazing conservation or biodiversity or rewilding project and thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is happening. I love that people are driving this hard and, and fighting for this change. But then because you end up inevitably in a little bubble of people that are like-minded to you and you're having all these conversations about how amazing stuff is, it's like you said, as soon as you step out of that bubble and you look at everyone else around you, you're like, oh, none, a lot of these people don't think the same way that I do. And like you said, wouldn't blink twice at like not like not buying an item of clothing once a month. Like that's, to me, that's mad. I agree with you. But like you said, a lot of people just, and you forget how many people and how outnumbered yes. you are in your own yeah. little way of thinking. And I'm sure every other facet of thinking feels exactly the same. Yeah. But to us, nature and the planet feels so important. It feels mad that we're still a small bubble of people. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, when you say that you don't have hope and you're pessimistic and you feel despair, people immediately take that as a bad thing. And I don't necessarily think it is. I think some of the biggest moments in history where change has happened has been at that point of despair and complete and utter loss and no light at the end of the tunnel. And that's when I think humans really adapt and really, you know, they kind of take a, you take a step back and you like, you think about different ways you can do things and I don't know, I wouldn't always argue that it's, it's bad to be pessimistic. I think I don't think I'm pessimistic, I think I'm realistic. Realistic. So I'm not putting some fairy thing like, you know, if we all just stay positive, we can do it. It's it's quite toxic because it's not the real, you know, face of things. You can you can be whingy and realistic about stuff and still be constantly committed to, to fighting for change. I think. Absolutely. It's a bit grumpy about it. I think it's still important <laughs> as well to to look for those positive stories. Uh, because they do happen. I mean, I was literally reading today um, the on a BBC article about how blue whales are making comeback in South Georgia. Uh, the islands around there, so like population there was decimated uh, during really large whaling industry, like fa- famous whaling industry around the eighteen hundreds onwards, and that was held up as an example of humans exploiting a resource beyond the point of recovery and it was just assumed they would never return never come back but apparently it's not just a new thing this year it's for the last couple of years without people realizing they've come back so that's so that's a bit of a ramble but i think it's important to look for stories like that that surprise you a little bit that keep keep you going because uh it's it's very hard to do what you do uh, in such a campaigning role without um having a bit of positivity behind you because you because you kind of have to like realism mixed with 
pessimism and some optimism all in there, a little, little jar of everything. <laughs> I ran yeah. out of words. Exactly. <laughs> I, nice, I like the idea of a nice jar potion. of everything. Yeah, with a little, little jar, a splash yeah. of hope to try and give you something to fight for, I suppose. Yeah. So, I mean, Lucy, if you were in charge then, like, how would you get Britain back to peak nature? Like more rewilding projects, like changing oh, land wow. ownerships, like more public engagement? What What would you do? That's a very political question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, where do you start? Um, so I'd say the amount of, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to say this without being political, there's an unfair skew in the uh, interests of land management, the ownership of land and the lobbying power of that ownership with regards to how the actual land's treated. Um, there's very questionable, I'm going to be bold and say there's very, very questionable land use in a lot of the UK. Some of it um, can be arguably for required economic reasons, so things like forestry, things like agriculture. You know, we need food, we need timber, we need these things. Um there's a lot of, I think, waste and bad use of land within that. Um, if you look at the increase in, you know, application of pesticide use since just the 90s, that tells you all there is to why, you know, insect populations are collapsing in a, on agricultural areas. Um, so I think cutting waste out of the system, um, just completely changing the whole subsidy system that we've got going on. So, I mean, if you want to get yourself really riled up, go and have a look at the system of... Um, subsidization for sheep farming in the UK. Um, obviously, it can be quite an emotive subject. It's a very traditional livestock. It's um, you know often passed down in generation after generation, people, sheep farmers, but sheep farms can be subsidized up to 80% and they take up... Uh, yeah, Gosh. it's great. So we, we as average people, like I don't eat meat, are paying for people to maintain sheep on upland areas. Sheep are a non-native mammal in the UK, so all of the plants that we've got here are not adapted to the intense pressure of sheep grazing. So this is why you end up with completely undiverse swathes of our uplands that are just grazed to the absolute bone by sheep that are kept at a really high intensity. Trees can't grow in the uplands, shrubs can't grow in the uplands, scrub can't grow in the uplands, so you just end up with this bare blanket of grass. Why are we doing that? Why are we paying to keep nature out in the form of sheep? Why aren't we paying people to manage land instead? It's really complicated, so I'm not just saying that's an easy solution. It's something that I believe needs so to be So you'd ban at. all um, sheep? Okay. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really I didn't. I had no idea yeah. about that. That's it's, really interesting. No, nor did I, no. Uh, that's it's really complicated. Because, as you say, it's been going on for so long. Yeah. Everyone thinks of it as traditional and something that's always been and there. But in terms I'd of the nature large... and its resilience, not at all. No, it's still exactly. suffering and... for it. Exactly. And I'd say a large proportion of the problems that have happened in the UK, a large issue that can maybe summarise everything, is shifting baseline syndrome. So the, the process by which you have a skewed perception of what nature used to be. Because, um, you know, you can those memories of how bountiful nature used to be can fade over time. And back when you were younger, it was already massively depleted then. So if something's depleted by 70% since the 70s, it might have already declined by by ninety percent in the hundreds of years before that. So you're looking at the seventy percent of the ten percent left. It's but people still think that that was abundant, and if the same happens the other way around with encroachment of, of management issues. I'm being really nerdy now. I am aware. Um, so if you look at like sheep in large areas of the Lake District, they've, they've almost doubled in in the numbers of sheep on the land. But you're 
average person will say, well, no, there's been no change because it's that slow encroachment over time that you don't notice. Um, Which I suppose yeah. is where it gets dangerous with when we talk about climate change, for example, when people use the term the new normal. Yeah. It's, it's that sort of assumption or, or you are normalising that process. And I suppose yeah. that, yeah. yeah. It's like, I'm going to go for the really obvious choice here, but it's like grouse moors. Um, I will hold my hands up and say as a conservationist and pretty much a vegan, I am not against shooting or hunting of animals. Um, trophy hunting's a bit weird, but there's complicated things with that. Actually hunting for sustenance, hunting food, I think is a very, um, if you've done it in the right way, I think it's a, a great way of, of maintaining a relationship with the natural world, which a lot of people will disagree with me on that and say they could never hunt anything. Um Driven grouse shooting in the uplands is just, it's just nonsense. It's just, it's so um, mind-boggling that huge swathes of what should be pristine upland bog habitat are now blanket dry monocultures of heather with no life in them. And people who manage that land will tell you that there's wildlife in them. There's some birds, so things like lapwing and curlew, and maybe golden plover can do all right there. Meadow pipits, tons of them. There should be so many other species in there. There should be such greater diversity. It's peatland because there should be sphagnum moss there, but yet they set it on fire every year so no sphagnum moss can grow anymore and the peat's drying out and it's releasing carbon emissions. So it's land management like that that I just go straight in and say, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Let's change things. Let's just, you know, we can work together. I would pay money as a naturalist, as a bird watcher, to go onto a private estate and watch wildlife if I could access it three days a week and hunters could access it four days a week if it was managed for a high enough proportion of animals so there'd be enough to shoot. I'd pay money for that. And people don't come out and say this often enough, but it's often like pitched as the shooting lot against the nature lot. Land can be managed for both and for the better of nature and the climate. And I just think we need to start talking to each other more about it because that's what I'd do. <laughs> anyway. That was a so, very that was good answer. That was yeah. a very good answer. I like that. I, I see what you mean though about the idea of kind of two communities always being pitched head head on head and that, that being the, the almost expected the way that both communities operate is against each other and it's it's mm. silly it shouldn't shouldn't have to be like yeah. that we're not all only one thing in our lives i don't see no. why we can't each be both or learn exactly. to share or compromise yeah. yeah we always try and other each other and it's it's like the whole argument with farming it's like we buy the food we, you know we're not saying this is you doing it it's us doing it mm. we're paying you to do it like it's not a blame game it's like we're just being rubbish as general humans <laughs> Not what label you are. <laughs> We're all rubbish. Good. What a what a great <laughs> note to end on. <laughs> We're all rubbish, but we should all try a little bit. You've given us a lot to think about in terms of how how we can perceive nature. Even us, I would say that um, we we love nature. We like to think we're, we're very knowledgeable. You, a lot of the points you've raised are yeah, just fascinating to to consider and 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 very pointed in, in the way that we can all coexist and work towards a better natural world i suppose coexist is the right word the world is full of literally billions of people with good intentions good souls good intentions just want a positive happy life and unfortunately the systems we've got in place are making it unjust and unfair for a lot of people and for the environment and for wildlife and we just need to kind of harness that intention to influence change yeah, and to empower people to feel as though their opinion matters the, and that they can make change for the positive and for everyone else. 
Yeah. Starting with the man in the woods who thought you were skulking. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> One man that thought that you were a peeping Tom is now a keen birder. We'll get him on the podcast next year. <laughs> well, Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute yes, pleasure you. to pick your brains. And now I've got a stock answer for when people ask me what I would do to save British nature. That's perfect. Thank you for that. Um, where can thank people? You so much for me. Uh, where can people find you uh, if they want more from you? Uh, I'm basically just on most social media except TikTok and Facebook. As Lucy Lapwing, um, Latin bird, really cool bird. Um, Is that a favourite bird for you, or was that just the alliteration that drew you in? It's in my top five, but it was the alliteration. I'm not going to lie. Nice. <laughs> you know what? I'm ashamed to say. It took me a while before I realised that wasn't your second name. Everybody says <laughs> that. I really wish it was. I really wish it was. Um, okay, brilliant. And um, you can catch more from from us, myself and Lloyd, on all of our own social media. Just search for For What It's Earth podcast. Absolutely. We, we love a good chat. Please do. And uh, leave us a review as well, because that helps us shoot up the charts and uh, burn all other podcasts in our wake. So we are <laughs> the only podcast left standing. That's, that's our goal um, in the post-COVID world. But... <laughs> Uh, a good point to mention as well is that everything we've said, all our views and opinions that all three of us have, have expressed in this podcast are our own and not that of any employer or other third mysterious party. Uh, so it's just us. Yep. So if you're annoyed by anything we said, take it up with us and not anyone that we work for. Lovely. Well, thanks so much, Lucy. Um, thanks, Lloyd. We will see you again shortly. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank mm-hmm. you.